Okay, this episode is going to be sort of a more casual episode, um, kind of a throwback to my earlier days um, where I just um, talk into my phone solo about various thoughts and reflections that I've been having. The topic uh, involves basically two kinds or two approaches to Christian universalism, one of which, very roughly speaking, um, is less accurate, um, uh, and the other of which is more accurate but harder to communicate. Um, these thoughts have been occasioned um, by my um, continuing um, attempts to make sense of the book of Revelation, and, you know, they haven't been all that successful. In fact, pretty much everything I've said about Revelation I consider to be embarrassing and, and at best, a partial truth. And um, I keep working on it, but it keeps eluding me, which I'm sure on some level is sort of um, the point of that book. It seems to me that there is no, at this point, that there is no propositional way that the alls and the forevers of um, the Bible can ever uh, be harmonized. Not fully. You can do it, but it involves, it will involve um, reducing some of them to partial truths and uh, qualifying, um, you know, some of those verses. It seems to me that there is also another way of making sense of um, the the alls and the forevers and the tendency to speak now of annihilation, um, now of um, eternal torment, and now of universal restoration, um, um, namely a Mysterian way of holding these things together. And um, that's kind of what the upcoming segment of this episode will concern. It's going to be a, a message that I sent to my friend Luke, um, who for uh, regular listeners of this podcast, um, you, you will know that he continually, you know, makes appearances on my little uh, program and others. Um, and then, you know, I just also talk to him, um, uh, sharing my thoughts and, and listening to his thoughts. Um, but the recording I sent him this morning, which is... Um, uh, basically of myself and my son kind of wandering through our apartment complex. Um, it is accessible enough that I could include it in this episode. Um, and um, I think it does a fair job of explaining what I will try to be explaining. In the meantime, what I want to get at um, is this idea that, um, you know, while certainly we consider the principle of non-contradiction you know, this idea that things can't be both themselves and, you know, not themselves, um, not at least not in the very same sense. You know, ordinarily we do consider that to be this kind of key exclusion criterion of reality, because without some exclusion criterion, um, what would it make, what sense would it make to say of something that it is real or that it is true if we can't speak about what is not real and what is not true? And, you know, that's all well and good, but... Um, I think the thing that I want to emphasize is that there is also a level of reality where um, contradiction has to be brought in. There's a level of reality that is that is dynamic. That is another way to put it would be dialectical. Another way to put it would be to say it is contradictory. And 
and and it's that level where as it were you have to bring in contradiction or illogic in order to make sense of um um stability and coherence and logic and um you know at that level reality is as chris langan has put it um, a, a self-resolving paradox um it is it is a, a kind of dynamic um flow one way into this idea is i think to to ask um whether change is real now certainly it seems to be real at first glance and then you sort of ask yourself well if if change is real then when does it happen and you find yourself unable to pinpoint a moment when it does and um you know that sort of led parmenides to conclude that change is not real but the the trick is that it it is real um as 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 a kind of ever present impossibility but only as a kind of ever present impossibility in other words um the nature of our immediate experience is strange. It is dialectical. It is illimitable. To describe it is like writing on water. And the nature of the illimitable, as I explained before, is dialectical in the sense that, you know, to speak of illimitability is on a higher level of predication to, to put forward a limit. If only that on some lower level of predication, there are no predicates or limits. And then once one has recognized this, um, the, the dialectic um, uh, kicks up into a higher level, taking um, its former stage as an argument, and um, you know, continuing, continuing the process of seeking, as it were, the true infinite and the truly illimitable uh, ultimate reality. Not only ultimate reality, but also immediate reality. Sort of is itself in the act of um, trying to express itself which maybe sounds a touch heideggerian but you know i mean i think that without adducing any specific philosophy there's just this way that all philosophies at all times have sought to understand and explain this certainly the Tao that you know you know the the Tao Te Ching comes to mind um with its with its aphorism that the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao you know, again, a useful thing I learned from Chris Lang is that the, the infinite is, is is unreferenceable, but not absolutely so. It, it, meaning to say that, that it actually has a dialectical or, or reflexive element, um, or, or a dimension, shall we say. Um, all this, I think, is relevant to what I'm going to say about hell, um, which is, I think, so sort of a, an imperfect way of understanding what Scripture is saying would be to say that scripture says there is a hell, but sort of like the judgments of um, the Old Testament, though they are said to be forever, they just turn out to not be forever, sort of the way that all doesn't always mean all. So the sort of imperfect way of understanding hell in scripture is to, to take it and then to qualify it. But then I think a better way would be to understand that hell is actually endless, but also that it ends, which sounds very strange, you know, you can ask, um, how how can it be that anything is like that, that it that it is endless but also ends? And I think the answer is that your own immediate experience is like that once you attend to it. The present as such, it cannot be measured and it cannot be durated. See, we think that eternity is something different and other than what we ordinarily experience, but I suspect it's not really like that. 
I suspect that the nature of even our own immediate present experience is, is actually, dare I say, eternal. I think that when you really dive in and attend to it, it has more to do with eternity than it does with temporality. So I would submit that the more accurate way to understand um, the foreverness of hell as described in scripture, you know, it's, it's not really, it's not really infinite tempor temporality in the sense of like uh, indefinite or infinite ex extension along the space-time continuum. If only because that may itself have an end. Rather, what is eternal, what is Ionios, um, it, it has to do with the kind of elusive um, uh, nature of the present moment itself, itself. Where truly understood, it has no extension or duration, and it cannot be measured against anything other than itself. So anyway, um, with all that as preamble, I'm going to play um, the... the um, clip of of uh, me talking to Luke with my son making his uh, funny noises um, in the background um, and with all kinds of various noises like leaf blowers and things like that um, and maybe it will not be much more than um, um, a less mm, perfect um, explanation of, of, of what I've already tried to express but I think that um, it will be useful, um, nonetheless. When I started theologizing, you know, one of the things that I thought was, you know, you under no circumstances can you do away with the principle of non-contradiction, because um, if something can be a contradiction, then you have, you know, no selection criterion, and if there are no if there are no conditions under which something can be not true, then there's nothing that it means to speak of real or true. And then kind of what I came to see, but, but not immediately see the full implications of, was the fact that um, you can have contradiction. In fact, you must. But it has to be at the right level, say, of analysis or explanation. It has to be at that ultimate level. Where indeed... Um, Everything is 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 paradox, um, if of a self-resolving kind, right? That's um, uh, like um, you know, you, you say a lot of them, but I mean, for me, the one that's interesting is like change seems to be our reality, and yet if change is real, when does it happen? The moment cannot be pinpointed. You know, and that's really what led Parmenides to say what is, is, and what is not, is not. You can never get beyond this thought. Change is not real. But the thing is, it is real. Um, but the way in which it's real is, is as this ever-present impossibility. Um, so, the the contradiction, it has to be there because it's like, that ultimately there's no making sense of logic and identity without contradiction um but it's it's a it's a it's a snake um chasing its own tail but um like mcgilchrist said always at kind of a higher level up with each turn hence farther up farther in um and then this brings 
brings us like to the nature of um, time and the nature of hell, which are very hard things to think about. Because it's like the beatific vision and the experience of hell are like, they're similar in a way, but also completely opposite. Because the beatific vision is uh, one which is timeless, but timeless in a different way than the experience of hell, which is maybe nearer to infinite temporality. And, um, you know, the beatific vision is more like timelessness. Um, and the, the, the question is basically whether the, script, the scripture describes hell as eternal. I think it does. <clears throat> and um, if so, like, what does that mean? And, and can we say that, that, that what is eternal is endless? I think you can, you, you can say yes. But also, also no. Um, and the kind of the mystery <coughs> is that is that is that hell is eternal, whatever that means, and and probably we should not understand it simply as some form of infinite temporality. But um, um, you know, hell is eternal, but but um, love is ultimate, and. Um, that's kind of the, so the thing is, there's the universal reconciliation, but it's, it's a very strong all of the above. It doesn't qualify eternal conscious torment, at least. Maybe it qualifies annihilationism while affirming it um, and makes that more sort of existential. Um, but but the, the, the eternality of hell is not even necessarily just existential. You know, that might be as valid a thing to say as to say that it ends. Um, because of the, the way in which our, our experience, our present experience, is not simply like um, what you would call space-time, but it's the thing um, along which um, it's the dimension of reality along which space-time itself is updated and, and, and parameterized. And that itself is not some static fifth dimension, but that's a recursive process. That's, it's always taking itself as, it's an nth dimensional process, always taking, always spatializing, you might say, uh, what was previously the time-like dimension or, or aspect of that process and um, <coughs> moving farther up, farther in. And your own consciousness, like the present moment of experience, is always, um, I think, doing that. And, and some, somehow in that process, that's like the age of ages. You cannot actually durate that. You cannot measure that. You cannot extend it along some axis more fundamental than that, the process which is parametrizing and generating all axes. Um, and <coughs> the um, so I'm, I'm I'm thinking about this and and like really trying see. But the thing is, one could probably never really propositionally lay it out without um, having to qualify um, eternal conscious torment and say, well, it's only experienced as endless. Um, because the truth is that 
the truth would be that it is endless, and yet, as Dame Julia of Norwich said, all will be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things will be well. And, you know, of course, the ECT response to that is to qualify it by saying, yeah, everything's well because somehow we won't miss the people who are suffering, and it won't be a tragedy. Um, they'll just be gone, unremembered. Um, <coughs> and the ultimate reality will be, to that extent, actually partial and subultimate, not no longer embracing the totality of um, what has happened and what, what, what is. Um, um, so, yeah, I've been thinking about this, and of course it's very well brought out by George MacDonald in, in Lilith, in which he describes the, par the spiritual death as the condition of somehow being alive to experience one's own deadness. It's a, it's a fate far worse than physical death. And it's full of contradiction, in the, or it's at least dialectical tension, in the sense that Lilith or Mara, whoever that character is, she's try, she wants to die so that she won't have to experience the fact of her of her non-existence because that's what her existence is is to experience her own non-existence so she wants to not exist so she doesn't have to experience that which is totally convolved and crazy but it's actually also what it is because the present moment is like that it is a self-resolving paradox um, <clears throat> if it's contradictory if you try to understand it in terms of anything other than itself if you try to bring it down um, so, you know, to, to, some, to some kind of finite reduction. Um, and and um, so, yeah, you know, this, it's almost like, as it were, the proof of mysterianism, which is, you know, probably the right way to interpret scripture is, is, is mysterian. Because it would not be to say that, oh, um, you know, you just got to do your kind of evangelical universalist reading of Revelation, but then qualify it at, at select places where... Well, it feels endless, but that's not actually what it is. Even though that's a way of describing what I'm talking about. It's just a less accurate way. The more accurate way, though, is going to be very difficult. I mean, I, I, I but barely apprehend it myself, you know, is one way I could put it. The, the more accurate way to describe it, it's like, you can't really explain it um, propositionally in a way that will appeal to evangelicals. <coughs> But it has to do with the nature of ultimate reality as love and the fact that love has no opposite. Um, um, love, um, it embraces its opposite. Um, love is endless. Love is uh, invincible. Um, and that's, that's kind of like the, the intuition behind Dame Julian of Norwich state, statement that all, all will be well and all will be well in all manner of things will be well. I think some people have understood what she said, maybe she herself, but they, when that quote gets brought up, there's also like another statement that like the Trinity has within it a secret weapon, an operation that it will perform at that point just when everything appears most bleak. Um, and you know, that's very much like what our friend Jason talks about, because he's like, love descends into the uttermost bleak barrenness of what has happened just just let it be all that it is as terrible as it as it as it was and is and then what does love do with that 
what does it do to it? Because the, the understanding is that it transforms it. Behold, I'm making all things new. Um, and, um, well, Jason was saying, talking about truth as something which is the dynamic which simultaneously demands repentance and yet yet forgives. It's, it's, it's you know, some kind of reconciliation. It's an operation of reconciliation whereby reality hangs together and, and, and self-resolves um, as a self-resolving paradox. Um, and um, so, yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, I'm wondering the annihilation, I'm wondering if there's also some unqualified way in which that could be made sense of too, it's just in the sense of the continuity of personal identity. One is oneself and one is not. There is a sense in which, you know, uh, the person that one used to be is, is, is no longer um, identifiably oneself. Why? Because every composite phenomenon has an essence which is no essence. Um, the essence of no essence, the essence of nothingness, which at the same time is the, is the what? You need it um, to, you need it to um, have a coherent identity through time. So, and that's the, because I always wondered about how personal identity works, and I guess that at the end of the day, where, where it resolves is at that irresolvable level of the self-resolving paradox, the, the mystery the mystery in the now that you can, that you can't know, but which you can be, um, and uh, so yeah, just leave that out there. And um, as if that wasn't enough strangeness, I'm going to now read a few more things from my notes, um, just to give a flavor um, that. So it's like hell is eternal and then it ends. You are utterly and finally annihilated and then you are resurrected. Scripture is contradictory when understood propositionally and I, and I suspect that would be true uh, whatever position you adopt uh, soteriologically or eschatologically. You know, Arminian, Calvinist, um, Universalist, um, um, but it is also inerrant when, when you understand it mis in a mysterious way, um, which, is, which is deeper than any kind of finite axiomatic approach to reality can reveal. And it's more in the nature of um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem and um, the screwiness that, that results from acknowledging that, that reflexivity is the name of the game. And, and the, as, as Chris Langan does in his very interesting answers um, to objections against his CTMU, his cognitive theoretic model of the universe or theory of everything, um, uh, from uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem um, by uh, various um, internet critics and, and, well, maybe trolls. Um, um, what, what I mean is like that, that dialectical quality of, you know, this... Of, of the present experience, it's analogous to like this, this statement is unprovable. Um, if you can prove it, then you can't prove it, and, and so on. Um, it's, it's always getting away from you. It's like the present moment is the next now. Oh, it's, 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 it's too late. Or then again, was that, was that now? Because now is now, that was the past, and so on.
So it's like the eternal is, is, is where time has no meaning. But also understand that the, the interesting thing is that time already has no meaning in some sense. But, you know, again, probably a it would be a mistake to try and see eternity as some kind of like indefinite extension along the space-time continuum. Um, it's something um, uh, trickier, more chaotic, more reflexive. Um, and, and also inexpressibly painful um, than that. And now, um, uh, without, without a proper transition, um, I want to talk about revelation. Um, um, you know, and again, we can kind of go for the propositional approach to it. Like, if we're going to be evangelical universalists, um, which, you know, it may be something like a good intellectual exercise and nothing else to try and see to what degree one can be in an evangelical universalist but the and, and try to lay it out propositionally but the the real truth of scripture is not not that it's not that way you know like what for an example of what i'm talking about um a clever sort of um evangelical universalist could say that matthew 25 which describes ionia's punishment for the goats but ionia's life for the sheep um, it um, refers not to the great white throne judgment in Revelation, but to the sheep and goats, well, you know, arguably to, to the sheep and goats judgment that occurs um, uh, when Christ uh, premillennially returns and then, you know, inaugurates a 1,000-year period so that the punishment is Ionios, but it only lasts for the duration of that finite um, period um, and, you know, in some ways, I won't get into them, but there are actually quite good reasons for saying that if one had to choose Matthew 25 better maps onto that, that first judgment than it does onto the great white throne judgment. Um, but really, when one reads a verse like Matthew 25, you know, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, one always understands that in some way as referring to both judgments. It's both judgments. Um, and so, like, you know, Revelation, there's Revelation 14, 11, there's, you know, whoever was found with the mark of the beast on his head was tormented day and night um, in front of the lamb, um, and, and the smoke of his torment rises up and up forever and ever, something like that. And, um, you know, you can get legalistic and just say, well, how does an annihilationist answer this? Well, I answer it like like they do, you know, where it's like the, the the smoke rises forever and ever meaning that the the punishment itself is 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 sort of eternally remembered and yet it does not itself last forever um it's a it's the an eternal memory of, of some kind of finite operation but at the end of which you know there was redemption rather than destruction that's how a universalist could interpret it but it but at the same time it's like that doesn't seem to be what it means you know, or you can just say forever doesn't mean forever. And in some mysterious way, that's, that's, that's right. Um, um, but you know, the, the kind of, um, the, the evangelical or propositional way to lay that out would be to say that, um, well, you know, sometimes in the Bible, these, these, um, indefinite quantifiers are not used indefinitely. You know, all doesn't mean all forever doesn't mean forever. It actually has a finite duration, but you know, again, the kind of higher Mysterian understanding is to acknowledge that it, 
it does have an infinite duration but to say that what that means is something different than what you imagine when you when you say that when you when you think of um you know like indefinite extension along again this the space-time continuum so you know revelation is like there's kind of a problem where for universalists where at the end it doesn't look like god being all in all because it looks like uh, there's there's this kind of final division um and if you interpret that lake of fire as the refiner's fire, then at that point you can kind of um, say that, no, it is it is all in all. Because once God is all in all, even at that point, uh, you know, right at the second judgment or right after it, because once the sinners go into that lake of fire, that's it. They're immediately um, purgated, cleansed, redeemed. You can say that's the interpretation or the meaning of the second death and um obviously um i'm sympathetic uh, to that although i will acknowledge that doesn't really as far as i can make out appear to have been the meaning or intent of the author but you know the revelation is confusing because right after that it looks like you know at that point where time should have stopped time continues um you see the new jerusalem coming down out of space as this giant you know, 15,000 mile cube city. Um, and it, it's like time is continuing linearly on um, after the great white throne judgment, um, which in some sense, correct me if I'm wrong, should have been the end of time. Um, so that's interesting because it's suggesting like now it's as if eternity is only the beginning. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, w I would say that in the sense where time continues linearly after the end of time, then yes, the sinners do remain outside the gates, but the invitation is issued. And, um, you know, you can understand them as dogs outside the city, um, who, uh, as Jesus uh, acknowledged or admitted uh, to the Syrophoenician woman, uh, do receive uh, the crumbs um, at the edge of the uh, table. Um, and, or, you know, underneath the table. Um, and also Zechariah 14 is interesting because it talks about how in that day, um, there will be no night in the new Jerusalem and that, um, living waters will flow from it in summer and in winter. And, um, but it also seems like things are still in process and in flux. And it talks about the enemy of God, the enemies of God outside the, the city walls, um, being cursed um, such that their flesh rots um, on on their frame, um, you know, and, and the, the, their eyeballs rot um, even as they, you know, they see. And so that could certainly describe the state of the sinners outside who refuse mercy. But then again, you know, it's like you can well ask at what point did John the Revelator ever uh, clearly suggest that those outside the city can receive mercy um uh or will receive mercy he didn't seem to have it in mind um you know uh, exegetes such as robin perry um take um the re the apparent restoration of uh kings and nations as a, a very hopeful sign and in some sense their textual claim to interpreting them as um, the self-same kings and nations who had, you know, been creating so much trouble um, for the elect and for the church, um, in some sense, is better than um, 
the the other interpretation, which is that there's somehow different kings and nations, because you need to introduce a sort of unspoken premise there, go beyond the page and uh, add something that was not plainly written in the text, which, you know, it's, it's the book of Revelation, don't do that. <laughs> Except, of course, you have to do that to make sense of the darn thing. Um, so I'm not faulting, um, you know, non-universalists for doing that. Um, so I'm saying, yeah, in some sense, the textual claim for what Perry is doing is better, but only in the sense where it goes beyond the author's interpretation. And then, you know, you have that whole question of whether can you, can you go beyond the author's intention, rather? Can you go beyond the author's intention in a way that contradicts it? And you might say, no, you can. But then the question I, you could know, say, no, you, reality can go on being processed, you know, infinitely in a way that never contradicts any of the intentions of the authors of the Bible, but quite, quite apart from the factual question of whether, um, you know, various Bible authors uh, did not ever and would never have assented to uh, doctrines like the Trinity and never had them in mind when they, when they wrote what they wrote. Um, you know, there's also the question of whether, in principle, reality can continue in, indefinitely or infinitely in a way that, that never contradicts the intentions of, you know, uh, uh, ignorant human authors, especially if reality has as its characteristic form this kind of U-shaped, canonic um, uh, uh, structure um, whereby, you know, it it descends and is resurrected um, it, uh, through love or as a function of acting out love. So anyway, obviously these sound like strange thoughts and, and maybe they can't be very evangelical thoughts, but at the same time, the fuller meaning of, of scripture, it has to be there. Otherwise, you know, what was Matthew saying when he, when he, um, referenced Hosea out of Egypt, I have called my son. Hosea had a different meaning in mind. Um, and if he means something different than it, then that is plainly to contradict it. Um, maybe if you had told Hosea that that's what it also meant, and you had given him enough context and explanation for it to make sense to him, he would agree that it did not contradict what he meant. But I mean, I can assert that about what I think to be the fuller meaning of scripture too. That kind of assertion is, is cheap. Anyway, you know, these are again, admittedly strange, strange considerations and strange reflections. Um, I'll just read a few more of my notes. Universalism is two tiered. So the first tier is sort of propositional. It's less accurate, but it's more communicable. Um, and so that would be essentially to say that, you know, hell is experienced as infinite, but it, it is finite. And annihilation is sort of existentially the case because one identifies with the false self. One believes oneself to be the false self that uh, on the last day will be uh, inescapably annihilated, and so one, one may as well regard it as one's own destruction, because that is the only conception of oneself um, which a sinner has, the false self. And, you know, that gets into Lilith, um, and um, 
McDonald's writing about the, the process of um, this repentance and death to self, which I have read in previous episodes and may read again in this episode. But anyway, it has to do with this idea that, yes, when you go to hell, um, or those who go to hell will cry out to God to be saved, and they will not be heard. They will repent, and their repentance, repentance will count for nothing. But that is not because some final limit of God's love has been overstepped, but rather because sin cuts oneself off, um, cuts one off from oneself, causes disintegration in one's psyche so that one doesn't actually know who one is uh, and doesn't and, and believes oneself to be repenting sincerely when one isn't, uh, such that if God did let the sinners go at that point, they would straight away resume um, injuring their souls in the way that they were accustomed to do. And really, you know, I don't know. I don't know about you, but when I repent to God over various things, it's like the same is true of me. Um, so God in his mercy does not answer the prayers of, of, of the damned in hell, and that seems like death and the absolute greatest distance between oneself and God, but at the same time, God is always, God is always right there, even when you feel yourself farthest from him. And again, you know, that, that hell is endless in a way that probably cannot be, you know, fully understood or appreciated, um, because we don't have a full appreciation or understanding of time. But, you know, if this is the case, then it cannot be um, accurate to imagine. Again, hell is something like, or, or something, or something that it, it cannot be correct to imagine that hell is just the same thing as, like, indefinite temporal extension. If we don't really have accurate intuitions about time and what time is, then um, that should lead us away from thinking that we understand the the real nature of hell's you know eternity that it has some plain perspicuous meaning that that we can fully comprehend in the way that we think that we do okay so that 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 kind of propositional universalism is less accurate but more communicable the latter the mysterian kind is more accurate but only you know if um one uh takes the Buddha um, at his word when when the Buddha says to when the Buddha says that he is a finger pointing at the moon and one should not look at the finger but at the moon um, to, to look at the, the finger is, is is to just see incoherence uh, in the case of mysterious universalism um, but if one manages to look at the moon then then one sees that kind of um, reflexive dialectic that is reality, that, that self-resolving paradox, which it can never be proven, but it, it can always be felt, or as the Tao Te Ching puts it, you can't know it, but you can be it. It's an ever-present impossibility. Okay, let's see more of these quote-unquote gems. Um, universalism is contradictory when expressed propositionally, but so are the other two. Uh, positions. And so yeah, universalism is both a soteriology and an eschatology, that is, in terms of theories of salvation, there are um, Calvinism, Arminianism, Arminianism and um, universalism. And, and 
and universalism is an eschatology. So in terms of theories of last things, um, there is, um, I mean, as concern, concerns the fate of individuals, eschatology, it's like, it's last things, but both on a grand or collective scale, but also on the scale of like what happens to individuals when they die. Um, so the, the three eschatologies um, are annihilationism, uh, eternal conscious torment, and universalism. Um, and so you can see from this that universalism is both um, a soteriology and an eschatology. Um, but, you know, universalism is also crucially of two kinds, one of which does not really acknowledge the existence of hell, and the other of which I think in Mysterian fullness allows um, for for um, annihilation, um, eternal conscious torment, and uh, ultimate restoration to be true simultaneously. But the, the, the trick or the hinge here being that love is more ultimate because um, God is more ultimate and God is love. And the pattern of reality is that it does always bend back toward reconciliation um, through repentance and forgiveness because cause reality is is love. Okay, more gems. Um, hell is endless and then it ends, yet it's not a mystery. Or rather, it is a mystery, but only in the same sense as your own immediate experience is a mystery. I've said that. I've said that ad nauseum. Um, can these... Oh, I like this one. Can these Mysterian truths ever be successfully expressed in a non-agopic manner? Can I ever lay this out in a way where... I'm hectoring the other person, trying to convince them of my intellectual superiority and themselves of their intellectual inferiority for not seeing what I see, which, you know, may sound to them like a bunch of gibberish. Well, I mean, no, if only because it may sound to them just like gibberish, but, but, but also no, because even if you were, if you were absolutely brilliant and succinct, um, in, in your presentation of these things, um, a lot, you know, Christopher Langan and David Bentley Hart, as far as close as they managed to approach, approach these things, um, you know, you would be, as my friend Luke says, you would be right and be wrong. You would be, you know, in that paradoxical position of sounding like you're saying that, you know, only universalists are saved. The race to the top is the race to the bottom. Whoever would be first will be last. Why? Because in the kingdom, each one is first. There is no superiority here. You know, since I've already said a bunch of weird stuff, I'll go ahead and say another weird thing. Um, I once had a dream of Jesus and Mary, and it was without propositional content, except that in the presence of Mary, who was foregrounded, and Christ was backgrounded. Um, I felt myself at a loss from words, and I could only stammer over and over again um, about, I, in, in, the, in the dream, weirdly, I used the words noble lady, and, and I just, I was, I was at a loss to, to understand how I could deserve to be in the presence of such a gracious and noble lady. That's, so in the dream, that's all it was. But I felt it had a deeper meaning that was not expressed in words and that it was just a feeling. And then I had to kind of get at the feeling in, in kind of the the, the light of, of day. And I thought about it a long time. And then I thought that what it meant was 
that it's going to sound very strange. Uh, Jesus and Mary were telling me that I was becoming advanced in a way of seeing where um, everyone is is equally superlative. In other words, think not of advancement here. Think of the way that a parent sees his children. Each child is uniquely the each child is simultaneously the best child or the favorite child. Everything that is in God is God, so to speak. Whatever occupies your attention is rightly or fully understood. It is God, but from a certain angle, an angle that is unique and necessary um, to God's ultimate self-expression. In other words, it's something that he had to say about himself that he couldn't say without creating that thing or person, obviously. And so that's what I'm getting at. There's, there's no, there's no, I can't use like, if I could use logic and reason to like demonstrate the absolute superiority of universalism over, you know, other positions and just convince people of how wrong they were, um, uh, you know, that would itself be wrong. And fortunately, with this kind of weird Mysterian logic, I, I'll just be lucky if I can, can if, if people can still believe that I'm sane after they hear it, you know, let alone like be like have to bow to me uh, and acknowledge like, oh, yeah, this guy's got it all figured out. And I was wrong about everything, you know, because it's just not how it works. It's just not it's not kingdom logic, if you like. It's not how heaven builds. So I don't remember if I explained it, but the, the meaning of the dream, uh, to backtrack to that, um, was that you are becoming advanced in a way of seeing where um, everyone is equally superlative. In other words, do not think of advancement here. Um, and um, I... I, I think I may have prayed for confirmation of, of, of that being the right interpretation of the dream. I don't remember, uh, but I know that later that day I did listen to the, on, on NDE radio, I did listen to um, the near-death experience of, and again, you know, near-death experiences take them with a grain of salt, if for no other reason that they don't all agree with each other. But I listened um, to uh, um, uh, a near-death experience that I, I, I like very much um, for the first time called... Um, well, it was it was that of uh, Pauline Glamachek, if I'm saying if I'm remembering her name correctly, and it was a dream of Jesus and Mary, and it was a dream in which basically that same idea was was um, a dream. It was an NDE, um, in her NDE, the same idea was was expressed, if I recall correctly, that idea of of sort of um, everyone being again to use that uh, phrase uh, equally superlative. In, in the vision of God, Nicholas of Cusa has this idea that God is uniquely able because he is infinite um, to regard each person um, as, as though they were the only person um, in existence and is, and is able to, you know, do this with each person simultaneously. You know, and that is, that is something like um, what, what, what the divine gaze is and what divine love is. I said it in another episode that whatever is the object of that gaze, you could you could say that it becomes the pupil of a self-seeing eye. God sees himself in you, just as one sees one's true self in God. 
and the image of God being a kind of drasta effect or um, infinite um, two-way reflection of mirrors kind of thing. And, and this dynamic creates reality. Reality is created in, in this sort of, in this sort of um, divine parent-child relationship. And the relationship between Jesus and God, um, the Father, is sort of the epitome or ultimate expression of that relationship. Okay, so yeah, maybe that's it. Um, shorter episode. Maybe I've said, maybe I've said it all as well as I possibly could, which is not very well, but maybe it had to be said. Um, thank you for listening. Um, I will catch you next time.